0: Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 47, The Old New Republic. There's still more I need to do, but I have updated the genealogies and figured out the best way to add transcripts to posts on the main website at metachiepodcast.com. If you go to the post for this episode on the website, the transcript to this episode will be available. Transcripts have also been added for the first 14 or so episodes. I hope to get more uploaded in the coming days. Also, I'm going to update the podcast bibliography and the history podcast recommendations on the website soon as well. And as always, if you do like the podcast, feel free to drop me some change through the website, subscribe on Patreon, or tell the history lover in your life about the Medici podcast. And with that house cleaning done, let's get started. When Emperor Charles V learned that his unpaid troops had torn apart Rome, he ordered his court to dress in black as if mourning the death of a member of the imperial family. I have no doubt that Charles was sincere, after all, he was a devout Catholic, and he had put some effort into avoiding this very outcome. However, he was still a ruler, and he had practical reasons to lament the sack of Rome as well. In modern terms, the sack of Rome was a massive PR disaster for the imperial cause. It galvanized the League of Cognac. The imperial army looked like a pack of heretical barbarians to most of Europe. Even Henry VIII of England, who at this point was still loyal to the Pope, joined the alliance against the emperor. But what made the sack look even worse was another disaster that had happened just a year before. Not long after taking the island of Rhodes, Suleiman was once again on the march westward. He besieged and took the fortified mountain city of Belgrade, which opened the gateway for the Turks through the Carpathian Mountains. Several years later, on April 16, 1526, Sultan Suleiman himself led a large army into southern Hungary. His army was at least twice the size of the Hungarian forces that King Lajos II, king of Hungary, Croatia, and Bohemia, had quickly gathered. Over the past several decades, the Hungarian monarchy had been weakened under the boot of the country's overpowerful nobility. They had systematically dismantled Hungary's once fearsome mercenary force, the Black Army, and the kingdom's bureaucracy. Worse, by the time the Ottomans came marching, Hungary was in an alliance with Austria, but they had failed to inform Archduke Ferdinand of their battle plans and of the seriousness of the Ottoman threat. In fact, the only foreign soldiers that arrived to help were a small Polish battalion. On top of all this, Layosh II and his advisers made the rather inexplicable decision to put all their chips on a single confrontation with the Turks near the town of Mohawks on the Danube River, rather than going on the defense or relying on guerrilla tactics. Suleiman was able to trap the much smaller Hungarian force in a pincer movement. In a matter of hours, Sultan Suleiman won the battle wiping out the entire army and much of Hungary's nobility in a single stroke. However, while trying to ride his horse up a steep incline, he fell into a stream and his armor was too heavy to let him rise, causing him to drown in just inches of water. In only one battle, one of the great powers of Eastern Europe was about to be dismantled. With the deaths of not just the king but much of the country's leadership, Suleiman was able to take much of southern Hungary all but unopposed. Some of the surviving Hungarian nobility elected as their next king Janusz Zapolya, a powerful Slavonian magnate who had been entrusted with territory in the eastern part of the kingdom that would later become the independent Principality of Transylvania. Other nobles rallied around Emperor Charles V's brother, Archduke Ferdinand who happened to be the husband of King Lajos' sister Anna. Ferdinand was able to take control of the western and northern part of the country. He was also recognized as Lajos II's successor in Croatia and Bohemia, adding even more titles and lands to the Habsburg ledger. You can imagine what people thought a year later when the Greatest monarch in Christendom responded to the biggest display of the Ottoman threat since the fall of Constantinople by letting an army loot the spiritual capital of Christendom. As for Pope Clement, he had to live with knowing two of his and Pope Leo's worst nightmares. The growth of the Habsburgs' already sizable empire and Ottoman expansion west happened almost simultaneously. Still, it's hard to keep even a mediocre pope down. Even though Pope Clement had signed terms with Emperor Charles V, and the Roman citizens who had taken shelter there had been allowed to leave, Charles understandably kept Clement under locking key at the Castel del Sant'Angelo. So Clement waited until his guards became complacent, disguised himself as one of his officials, And slipped out of Rome. From there he fled to Orvieto, an almost impregnable mountain city in central Italy on papal territory. Clement was free, but he had no money and his options were non-existent. At Orvieto he stayed in what a Venetian ambassador described as a ruinous and decayed old palace with roofs fallen down. Pope Clement was even heard to have complained It was better to be captive in Rome than here at Liberty. It was while at Orvieto that the Pope had an audience with Stephen Gardiner, a bishop from England. He had come with a simple request. King Henry VIII wanted to annul his marriage to the Queen, Catherine of Aragon. She had had numerous miscarriages. A son was born and survived at first but died in infancy later. Her and Henry's only child who survived infancy was a girl, Mary. Normally such a request would have been unexceptional, almost routine. The strict rules of the Catholic Church demanded lifelong marriages and forbade divorces, but such restrictions were inconvenient to royal and noble power politics and the overwhelming need to produce heirs in order to preserve lineages. Since the church's rules also forbade consanguinity, marriages between people who were related within certain degrees of kinship, and Europe's royal families and noble clans all tended to be closely related, it was easy enough for the church to just suddenly notice the couple were too closely related, and the marriage should have never been legal in the first place, then dissolve the marriage and leave the children born to the marriage legitimate since the parents had married in good faith, after all. Or in situations where the spouses were given an exception to the rules, a pope could just nullify the previous decree and dissolve the marriage. In fact, everyone would have known of a scandalous case that took place just 30 years ago, when King Louis XII of France asked the Pope to annul his marriage to his first wife, Jeanne of France. Part of his argument was that because of a mysterious physical deformity, Jean was unable to conceive children. But besides heirs, Louis also wanted to be free to wed Anne, the heiress to the Duchy of Brittany, for political reasons. If tabloids existed back then, the trial would have been reported on for years. In the end, Pope Alexander VI granted Louis his annulment, and Jean retired to a convent. So there was some precedent. To try to simplify a famous but complicated story, before she married, Henry VIII Cafford of Aragon had been betrothed to Henry VIII's older brother, Offer. After Arthur died, she was then betrothed to Henry. There were a couple of verses from the Bible that seemed to condemn such marriages. Most importantly, Leviticus twenty twenty-one: If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. They shall be childless. The Pope at the time, Julius II, issued a dispensation allowing the marriage anyway, on the basis that, Catherine claimed her marriage to offer had never actually been consummated. Despite this, under normal circumstances, Clement almost certainly would have agreed to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine. Except the real knot in the issue wasn't biblical verses or the rights of one pope to overturn a decision made by a previous pope. It was the fact that Catherine of Aragon, just so happened to be Charles V's aunt. In fact, soon after his first meeting with Gardner, imperial envoys arrived at Orvieto, demanding that the Pope not grant the annulment. So Clement decided to string along the English for now. Even then, he probably had no inkling that this otherwise unexceptional affair would be the seed for another disastrous legacy he would bequeath on the Catholic Church. But for the time being, there was yet another catastrophe Clement was powerless to stop. If anyone could have taken a poll at that time and place, Clement's popularity in Florence would have probably been found to be in the seagull digits. He was so hated that when the news of the sack of Rome reached the people there, the city broke out in celebration. For too long, Clement had milked the city dry to help pay for the League of Cognac's wars in the indemnities the emperor had demanded following his last defeat. At least now the war would be over and the Pope was brutally humiliated in the bargain. Then on late May of 1527, just several weeks after the sack, Piero the Unfortunate's daughter, Clarice Strozzi, had a furious confrontation with Florence's unpopular regent, Cardinal Silvio in the Palazzo Medici. She furiously denounced Clement for refusing to promote her son Piero to the office of cardinal and for letting her other son Filippo become a hostage to the imperial forces in Naples, at a time when Clement was about to break his agreements with Charles. Anyway, she went on to argue, the Medici fortune was being hoarded by a pack of bastards, meaning Clement and Alessandro and Ippolito and kept away from the legitimate heirs of the family, referring no doubt to herself and her children. In fact, some peasant priest from the provinces and two illegitimate children had no right to represent the family at all. A gun then fired off nearby in the palace, either accidentally or not, thinking she was about to be assassinated, Clarice escaped into the gardens and made a mad dash away from the palace grounds. But this was not the end of it. The next day, her husband, Filippo Stratzi, later came to the palace with an armed retinue. Cardinal Silvio tried to raise a garrison to defend himself, only to be bluntly told that the treasury was empty and there was no way Pope Clement could spare any funds or men. Quietly, the regime folded. Filippo Strozzi negotiated for Cardinal Silvio, Alessandro, and Ippolito to quietly leave the city. They made their way north to the city of Parma on papal territory. Eight-year-old Catherine de' Medici, who had been living in the Palazzo Medici, was suddenly taken away from her tutors and servants as a hostage and placed in a series of convents. That night, the arms of the papacy were removed from the city gates and replaced by those of the Republic. As soon as possible, the signorio was purged, and replaced by candidates who would be friendly to the great families of Florence, the Automati, and unfriendly to the Medici. The new gonfalonieri, Niccolò Capponi, came from one of Florence's top noble families, and just so happened to be the son of one of the leaders of the Republic, after the downfall of Piero the Unfortunate. Acknowledging that the automati would like the Medici be quickly brought down if they tried to rule alone, as soon as he was in office, he reached out to the different factions. To appease more radical Republicans, he worked toward the re-establishment of the Grand Council that the Medici had abolished. For the Piagnoni, the Wailers, who still yearned for the good old days of Savonarola, Capone signed off on a rapid series of puritanical regulations. Harsh sodomy and blasphemy laws were put in place. It became illegal and punishable by fines for women to dress too luxuriously in public. And horse races and traditional carnival celebrations were suppressed. Jewish bankers were banished from the city. Gambling was restricted, as were the hours of taverns. The government set up a new department to handle the censorship of books, and a new law declared that only members of the clergy could debate religious topics. And these new laws were actually enforced. In an act of spontaneous protest, one citizen deliberately threw a crucifix into a well. He was executed. Still, Capone tried to promote reconciliation with supporters of the old Medici regime. Here, though, he found out how little power over the government he actually had. Anti-Medici partisans were the ones actually holding many of the levers of government. They targeted pro-Medici families with higher demands for tax payments and arranged for the arrests of Medici supporters on questionable grounds. It certainly didn't help that a special judicial tribune was established, which was allowed to hold its deliberations in secret, and which could circumvent most of the usual standards of evidence and rules that restrained Florentine courts. Still, despite these and a few other minor reforms, the new republic was really just the old one, and its leaders promoted the idea that their regime was a continuation of Savonarola's fondly remembered republic. If anything had changed, the Republic seemed to be even more openly under the domination of the Automati although in practice things were a bit more complicated. No representatives of the lower middle class and the artisan and worker classes were ever invited to give their blessing to the regime change or discuss potential reforms. In fact, the new leaders of Florence never even bothered calling a general assembly or repealing the Medici law abolishing general assemblies. As far as the leaders of the restored republic were concerned, Florence's destiny was to be a Venice-style oligarchy. While people like Componi might have been able to keep the rival factions in check, at least to a degree, as always, foreign affairs remained a threat that could overturn the entire ship at any moment. Medici or no, Florence was stuck as a member of the League of Cognac. And since Pope Clement was not in charge of Florentine affairs anymore, the other members of the League no longer trusted the new government to stay committed to the war effort. And probably Florence would have happily made a separate peace with Charles, or jumped across the fence to the imperial camp. The problem was that any treaty with Emperor Charles would have to come with large payments, which Charles desperately needed to pay his armies. And Florence just didn't have the cash either. So the new government was basically stuck in a war they didn't want, and couldn't benefit from fighting alongside allies who didn't feel any particular need to go out of their way to help and protect them, and they couldn't even negotiate their way out of the whole mess because the price tag would be way too high. But you know who did still have some bargaining chips to offer the emperor? Poor Pope Clement, in his ramshackle palace off in the Umbrian Mountains. Thank you for joining us, and buona notte.